Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, chapter 12, verse 1. And we'll talk about why we need God so much in this life we live. My, I have one brother, one younger brother, and he has two kids, a daughter who's the same age as my son, and then a son um, who's nine, and his son's name is Braden. You know how kids are the greatest truth-tellers of all, how they just say whatever they think and don't really think about tact or, you know, proper manners? Well, Braden is the ultimate example of this. The kid has no filter. He is the most honest human being who has ever lived. If you want to know what he's thinking, just listen. He will say it. Um, so an example of that is a couple of years ago, so he was around seven at this time, I was, I was kind of picking on him because he, my, my brother lives a mile from my parents, so whenever I go visit my parents, I see him too, and uh, so I'm always going to see them. They never come see us. And I was saying, hey, you know, Brayden, I'm always coming to see you. I go to see your baseball games. I go to your house. You've never come to see me. Why, why, when are you going to start coming to see me? And I, I said, for instance... You've never even heard me preach. And without even batting an eye, he said, why would I want to hear you preach? <laughs> well, um, I, you know, there's nothing really to say. Just, you know, go hug your mom and cry a little. I don't know. But sometimes you get hard truth. People say things to you you don't want to hear, but which are actually accurate. And today you're going to hear some hard truth. And that's what the Bible is good for. The Bible tells you what is true, not necessarily what you want to hear. Plenty of things in the Bible are exciting and comforting and things that we need to hear desperately. Other things are things we need to hear, but we don't want to. We'd rather they not be true. So I'm going to start by telling you a hard truth this morning. And it, it, it's basically one of the key themes of the Bible. It's all through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It's never stated exactly this way, but I'm going to say it this way. Following Jesus ain't for weenies. Following Jesus is hard. There's a reason why Jesus said, count the cost before you follow me. Remember, this was the Son of God. This was the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of humankind. And He was on the earth and He was starting a new way. Now, we here at this church and in every other church I've ever been a part of or every church I've ever known about, want to make things easy for people. Is there an easy way for people to come in, come as you are, sit in padded pews, air conditioning? We want to make things as convenient as possible. We want you to know you can be yourself. And all of that's true. And the gospel is that way. You can, you can be saved just as you are. But you notice that when Jesus went out and tried to win people to his side, he did it in what seems like a very counterproductive way. He said things like, if you want to be my follower, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Literally, his one-sentence sales pitch was, if, if you're willing to die for me, then you're in. Otherwise, you might as well keep looking. This was Jesus. And I'll say it this way. I'll say it in a way that probably resonates more with modern-day Americans. If the main goal of your life is to get wealthy or to become popular and famous or to crush your enemies and gain power for yourself so that no one ever pushes you around, or to enjoy this world's temporal pleasures to their fullest extent. If any of those or any combination of those is your chief goal in life, if, if that sounds like what it takes to be happy, then you don't want Jesus. Because it's a lot easier to get some of those things without Him because He gets in the way. And some of those things He won't let you have if you follow Him. 
And some of you are sitting there saying, hey, there's lost people here. Don't be saying that. They're not going to want to. Well, Jesus said it. Following Jesus is not easy. Being saved is free. Following Jesus is hard. And not only that, but there's this also this fact. Once you take upon yourself the name of Christ and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Jesus, you put a target on your back. This weekend, we're celebrating Memorial Day. We're remembering that we are free in great part because men and women laid down their lives for us, wearing the uniform of our country in dangerous places around the world. And even today, if you wear a United States military uniform in a place like Kandahar or Mosul, you're going to be a target. You're taking your life into your own hands. And the Scriptures are very clear on this, and it sounds paranoid to people who don't believe. I know. But if you read the Scriptures, it's quite clear. Once you call yourself a Christian, you make yourself an enemy of unseen forces that are unspeakably evil and have the resources to hurt, to really, really damage us. And this is the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That statement in itself is amazing. If you've got a boss that you hate, hopefully you don't work at First Baptist Church, but if you have a boss that you hate who makes your life miserable, if you have an ex-spouse, if you have someone who stole your spouse from you, if you have um, someone who abused you when you were a child, if you have someone who has gossiped about you and damaged your reputation, or someone who in any other way swindled you in a business deal, hurt you in some way that, that has wounded your soul, Paul says, you think they're your enemy? They're not your enemy. That's someone else for whom Christ died. No, your real enemy, he says, is against the, the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is an unseen war going on. Part of the reason Revelation was written was to remind the the Christians 2,000 years ago and us today that the things that go on unseen are even more real and lasting and important than the things we can see. So, as much, so the more we focus on winning the war here and, and getting control here, the more we'll miss the point. The real point is what goes on behind the scenes. So this week we're going to look at an example of that. Chapter 12 we're going to look at is sort of the Christmas story that you've never really read before. The version of the Christmas story you're not as familiar with. And then chapter 13 we'll get into uh, some familiar imagery you've heard about like the beast and the number 666. For some of you, this is the part you've been waiting for the whole time. So I hope I don't disappoint you. But more importantly, I hope, I hope that you gain from this a real understanding of what's going on and how we should live. So let's start with chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to His throne." So there's three main players in this opening drama of chapter 12. There is a dragon who we're going to see in verse 9 represents Satan. There's a child 
who, if you know the scriptures at all, you know it's talking about Jesus because it says he'll rule the nations with an iron scepter. No one is destined to rule the world except Jesus himself. So the child is Jesus. That's why I said this chapter 12 is sort of the Christmas story you've never seen. But who is the woman? The obvious answer is Mary, but I don't think that's who it is. Yes, Mary gave birth to Jesus, but as we read through chapter 12, you'll see things that happen to this woman, events that that don't correlate to anything in Mary's life. Others say, well, this represents Israel. The the woman represents Israel. Jesus was a Jew. Um, This woman has a crown with 12 stars. There are 12 tribes in Israel. And after all, all, throughout history, uh, people have tried to wipe out the Jewish people, even today. I mean, you go back to to Pharaoh trying to wipe them out in the time of Moses, all the way up to uh, Hitler and Stalin, um, down through history. Sad to say, even at times, the Christian church itself has turned against the Jewish people. And so you look at this and say, okay, then, then the woman represents the Jewish people. And yet, there are things when we get to the end of the chapter, you'll see it can't be talking about the Jews either. So who is it? Well, let's read on. Verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Now skip with me to verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Now look at verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commandments and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Now there is what I'm talking about. This can't be talking about Israel because Israel, for the most part, rejected Jesus. Even today, most Jewish people are not followers of Christ. This is talking, I believe, about the faithful people of God throughout the centuries, faithful Israel before before the time of Christ, and Jews and Gentiles who followed Jesus ever since then. I, I believe that it's talking about us and what it's doing. Remember, this is a letter to seven churches that were discouraged, that were persecuted, This is Jesus saying to those churches, this is why you're going through what you're going through. Long ago, before you were ever born, the devil declared war on you, on anyone who puts themselves in the family of God through the power of Jesus and says, he is my Lord. He is against you. That's why life is so hard. Don't be surprised at that. And he's saying the same thing to us. So let's look at chapter 13. In 13, things turn even darker. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a a leopard, but had feet of those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. 
It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Now skip to verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, So the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number is 666. So, This beast, these two beasts, one out of the sea, one out of the earth, what do they represent? I want to give you three options, three interpretations that have been held by Christian scholars throughout the centuries, and you feel free to go back and read chapter 13 on your own and make your own decision. I'll kind of give you some indications here and there and some evidence for each, and then we'll talk at the end of that. What does this all say to us? What difference does this make for us today? So, who do these beasts represent? There's the first option. They could represent hostile nations that will persecute God's people. That empires, uh, probably, not nation, probably not a nation, but an empire, since the beast, the first beast has uh, several heads, several crowns. Uh, nations will band together. They will form an empire. They will persecute the people of God. Now, you notice that in... in The early part of chapter 13, this beast resembles a leopard, has feet like a bear, a mouth like that of a lion. It reminds us, if you're a Bible scholar, it reminds us of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Now, if you're not familiar with the prophet Daniel and his book, his book is the most unusual book in the Old Testament. First half of it, it's pretty standard. It's it's familiar stories about the lion's den and, and the three boys in the fiery furnace. But then there's a turn and the rest of chapter, the rest of Daniel is prophecy. And of all the Bible, of all the books of the Bible, Old or New Testament, it's the one that has the most in common in terms of imagery and tone to the book of Revelation. And in fact, John in Revelation borrows some of the imagery from Daniel. And this is an example. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees four beasts, a bear, a leopard, a lion, and then a fourth that is more terrifying than all the others. Does that sound familiar? Those are the same terms that are used here in chapter 13, to describe the beast out of the sea. And those four beasts back in Daniel 7, y'all still with me? I know this is confusing stuff. Those four beasts, all scholars are pretty much in agreement. They represent successive empires in the pre-New Testament age that came along, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and then ending with the Roman Empire that dominated the world, that conquered and, and oppressed God's people. And so people look at that and say, well, then John just took that imagery and he applied it to an empire, one empire this time, that's going to arise toward the end of time and fight against the people of God. Now, if you were 
living in two or three hundred AD and you were reading Revelation, you read this and you said, well, obviously it's talking about Rome. The Roman Empire rules the world and they're against us. If you were living in the Middle Ages, the medieval area, era of, of Western civilization, you looked at this and you saw the Islamic Empire that was conquering, spreading like wildfire throughout the Middle East. It had conquered the Holy Land. It had finally won the Crusades. It had invaded it, Europe and conquered most of Spain. It, it would have would have conquered all of Europe if not for the Battle of Tours. So that's what they saw in my own time. In many of the, the time of people my age and older, we looked at this and said, oh, it's the Soviet Union, but Soviet Union's no more. So people look at this and say, well, there's some future empire that's coming. There's some empire that, that will come that will oppress the people of God, and that's what this means. That's one option. Second option, it's talking about world leaders who will seek personal worship. It's saying that eventually there will come along a man or, or, or two individuals who will demand not just political power and authority, but personal worship to be treated as if they are divine. And they will oppress the people of God. Now, this agrees with that you get some evidence for this from Matthew 24. Matthew 24, Jesus is giving his Olivet Discourse, talking about the end times. And he talks about a, a person called the abomination that causes desolation who will stand in the temple of God. So that could be this beast out of the sea that he's talking about. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about who the, the person he calls the man of lawlessness who will stand against God's people. That again could be talking about this beast out of the sea. And people who believe in this interpretation refer to this individual as the Antichrist. Notice that term is not used in the book of Revelation. In fact, the only place in the Bible it's used is the book of 1 John, and it's not talking about an individual there. It's talking about an attitude or, or a way of thinking. But let's call him the Antichrist. If this is your interpretation, that's the interpretation I grew up hearing from preachers and teachers and Bible tracts. Probably the one you grew up hearing if you grew up in an evangelical background. If this is the Antichrist, then the idea is he corresponds to Jesus. So the dragon is the false version of God the Father. The Antichrist is the false version of Jesus the Son. And this third human being, this beast out of the earth, is the false prophet. A religious leader who will come along and give legitimacy to the Antichrist, who will demand that people worship him, who will um, basically orchestrate the, uh, the religious aspect of the Antichrist's uh, rule. So he's, he represents the false side of the Holy Spirit, sort of an unholy trinity, dragon, beast, false prophet. That is a second interpretation. And then the third is the idea that maybe this doesn't represent humans at all or empires, but it represents false teaching. It represents uh, false doctrine and heresy and cults that arise up within God's people and seek to lead them away from God and away from the truth. And this would correspond to a lot of the New Testament. If you read the New Testament, I, I give you this challenge. If you read the New Testament, try to find a single book of the New Testament that doesn't at some point warn you against false teaching. It's all through God's book. God is intensely concerned that His people not be swayed from the truth, that we not vary from the truth that He's, that he's given us. He's called us to be warriors for the truth. Jesus Himself said in Matthew 24, 24, again, in the Olivet Discourse, talking about the end times, He said, For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. 
So under this interpretation, John is giving us a warning that, that the devil's going to use the, the, uh, the strategy of false doctrine to lead God's people away from the truth, to destroy churches, to pervert the gospel. You look at how many, if you know Christian history, how many cults have arisen, how many uh, heretics have come along and, and led people away from the truth. And even today, we see it. You have to listen critically. I'm a, I'm, I believe in being generous. I especially believe in generous to someone who's trying their best to teach the Bible. But you also have to listen with a critical ear. So what is the 666 thing? Some of you have been waiting for this moment since I started Revelation. What does 666 represent? Are you ready? I don't know. There are those who believe that it's a numeric code. Because it does say the number is the number of his name. And so they'll say, okay, so if you take six and you, you, move, and you, you, you carry the eight, and, you do, and they come up with these ideas that you can mathematically decide who the Antichrist is. And I think that's a fool's errand. I really do. I would not, if, if you see a book that claims to do that, don't buy the book, okay? Someone loans you the book, pretend to have read it and give it back to them. Don't open it. It's, it's not a good idea. When I, was, when I was a teenager, Ronald Reagan was the president. And you know there were some people who thought he was the Antichrist. You know why? Because his name, Ronald Wilson Reagan, has six letters in each of the names. Can you believe that? I had, I had my brother had a, a roommate when he was at A&M who was furious because the number that was assigned to their dorm ended in 666. And that's just pure superstition, folks. The, the, that, that's not what this is about. I believe the number 666 here simply represents evil. It represents the fact that, that God's number is seven. Seven in ancient times was the number of perfection. 666 is just a way of saying, I'm not with you, God. I'm not with you, God. I'm not with you, God. I'm doing things my way, my way, my way. The num three times is just a way of repeating it and emphasizing it. This is talking about rebellion against God's plan, rebellion against God's teachings, rebellion against God's will. I believe that's what it's about. Again, I'm, I was serious before. I don't know, but that's what I believe that number represents. So again, if you go, to, go out to eat today and, and, and they hand you your receipt and you're figuring up your tip and your tip adds up to $6.66, number one, you should tip more. But number two, it doesn't mean anything, okay? Do not be superstitious, people. We follow Jesus Christ. You want to be sure you're on the right side? Follow Jesus. And so I want to say to you this very carefully, since I think most people in this room probably hold to the second interpretation I mentioned, that the beasts represent a, an individual antichrist, an individual false prophet, and that could very well be the truth. But even if it is the truth, I want you to notice that nowhere in this chapter, nowhere in Revelation, nowhere in the entire Bible are we told, you need to figure out who this person is. You need to figure out who this is so you can stand up against him, so you can oppose him, so you can do what you have to do. It never says that. This is biblical prophecy. Things are going to happen according to God's will. It's not our job to try to figure things out. Again, People have tried and made fools of themselves. People have tried and done incredible damage to the witness of God's church. 
if you want to be on the right side, follow Jesus. You want to make sure you're doing the right thing, obey His commandments. You want to make sure you are living the way you should and not being deceived? Let the Holy Spirit guide you. Don't focus on evil. And some might say, well, I, I want to make sure. Well, what if it's some American politician? I don't want to, I don't want to be, be fooled into voting for him. <laughs> Please understand the security that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. Once you're a part of God's family, can you sometimes be deceived? Absolutely. Will you ever be lost to God? No way. There is nothing that can separate us from Him. Don't worry about it. Stop focusing on the evil side. Follow your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you will be on the right side. And that's all you need to know. Because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. So what do we take from this chapter? If it's not for the purpose of us trying to figure out who the Antichrist is so we can form some kind of active resistance, then what is this chapter about? What do these two chapters tell us? Three things real quickly. I need to say these quickly and then we're done. Number one, we should embrace the fact that following Christ is hard. We just need to accept the fact that we live on planet Earth, a cursed world where evil things happen, where we are the target of evil forces, where we're going to experience trials. And there's ample evidence in Scripture for that. I tell you, when you listen to certain preachers, you would think that following Jesus means your problems disappear, but they are cherry-picking and misusing certain Scriptures and ignoring the vast testimony of the Bible. Let me give you just three examples. Acts chapter 14, 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. James 1, 2. Count it pure joy, brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. John 16, 33. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I promise you, none of you are going to go out and write that on calligraphy and, and put it on a frame on your wall. I understand that. These are not the most encouraging of verses, but aren't you glad God has told us the truth? Aren't you glad God hasn't sold us a bill of goods, hasn't done a bait and switch and said, hey, follow me and everything will be great. And then we get into the family and he says, oh, by the way, this world stinks. No, he's told us ahead of time. That way, that way when trials come, we don't say... Well, God, are you, are you no longer faithful to me? When trials come, and this should give you some comfort if right now you're going through really hard difficulties right now, and some of you are, it doesn't mean God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It doesn't mean you did anything wrong. We live in a difficult world, and until Christ returns, that's the way it's going to be. And if right now you are struggling, that's life. If right now you're hurting, you should say to yourself, I know that my God loves me because He laid down His life for me. Therefore, for Him to have allowed this into my life right now, it must mean it's really, really important. Several years ago, uh, the pastor in Minnesota, John Piper, was diagnosed with cancer. And he wrote an article that went viral online. The title of it was, Lord, Don't Let Me Waste My Cancer. And I don't mean to make light of anyone's struggle with illness or anything else you're going through, but what John Piper was saying was, I know that God wouldn't have allowed this into my life if there wasn't some important purpose, and I don't want to miss it. I don't want to get, get stuck in my own self-pity to the extent that I miss the lessons He wants me to learn and the, the opportunities He wants to give me to glorify Him through the midst of this pain. 
And many of you, if you're honest, can stand up and testify and say, I, I don't, I'm not glad I went through what I went through. When I went through my divorce or when I went through the grief of losing a child or, or when, I, um, when I experienced that time of ill health or when I lost my job and I lost all my finances, I don't, I'm not glad I went through that. And yet, because of that, here are the good things that happened. Embrace the fact that life on earth is going to be hard. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't enjoy the good times and you, because you should. And there are plenty of them. And if you have a family around you that you love, enjoy every moment with them. And if you have your health, then get out and do something with the body God has given you. And if you've got more money than you need just to put food on your table, then enjoy it and bless others with it. And if you've got friends that you can call your true friends, then spend time with them and thank God for them. Whatever you have is a gift of God and enjoy it, but none of it is promised to us. And all of it will be taken away at some point. Everything except Jesus himself. Embrace the fact that life on earth is hard. Aren't you glad that's just point one? Secondly, we don't fight like others do. We don't fight like others do. I want you to notice, again, there's no instruction here on how to form an armed resistance to the Antichrist, but instead there is this verse in chapter 12, verse 11. It says, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You know what that says? That says we have three weapons as Christians. We have the blood of the Lamb. We have the fact that we are saved and forgiven. No one can take that away from us. We have the gospel, the word of our testimony. We go out and, and we share with people the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And we have the fact that our martyrdom, if, we, if it ever comes to that, our martyrdom will plant seeds that spread the gospel faster than anything else we could possibly do. And we are blessed if that happens. And down through history, so many Christians have found that to be true and have courageously stood for Christ. Now, what I'm about to say could be the main reason you're here today. God didn't bring you here today to learn what Revelation 12 and 13 are about, to know important facts about the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth and number 666. God brought you here, many of you I'm sure, and I don't know who they are, I'm not the Holy Spirit, but in any crowd this size, this will be true. God brought you here because there's somebody who's hurt you. Somebody who's wounded you. Somebody who's swindled you. Somebody who, in your mind, and in the minds of everyone who hears what you've been through, you owe it to them. You need vengeance. You hold a grudge. You're waiting to see them topple. You're, you're, you're telling all your friends what they've done so they'll turn against that person. And, and everyone around you says, yes, you're right to feel this way. And what Revelation 12 says to you is, we don't fight like others do. We don't do that. Romans 12, 21 says it this way, do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. So again, the reason you're here today may have nothing to do with the end times. It may have everything to do with the fact that right now you need to forgive somebody or you need to go and ask someone's forgiveness. And I know, I know that's a hard thing to say because I don't know what you've been through. And in your shoes, I might not be able to forgive. But let me explain something because some of you would say to, back to me, there's no way I can forgive because of what they did to me. It still hurts too bad. Please understand what biblical forgiveness means. 
It doesn't mean you don't hurt anymore. It doesn't mean you can look at them and not feel anger and hurt inside. If today, after church, you're so upset with me because of how long the sermon went, you whack me in the head with a two-by-four, my ability to forgive you has nothing to do with how long I'll have a black eye. You understand? That black eye is going to be there no matter whether I forgive you or not. The consequences will remain. In the same way, someone hurts you, you're going to hurt for a while, but you can forgive them immediately because what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is not getting over it. Forgiveness is I, from this point forward, choose not to wish ill upon you. Instead, I choose from this point on to treat you as someone I love. I may not like you. It may be hard for me to even see you. But when I see you, I'm going to pray for you. When I encounter you, I'm going to speak with kindness. If I have an opportunity to do a good thing for you, I'm going to do it. I may not feel like it, but I'm going to do it. Sorry to say this, but Jesus didn't die for us because we were likable. He died for us because He chose to. And every time we choose to forgive, it's the same way. We come before the Lord and we say, they wounded me, Lord. You know what they did. But from now on, when I pray for them, and I'm going to pray for them often, it's going to be for their good. That's forgiveness. Can you do that? Because I promise you this, not only is it, and this is the main reason to do it, not only is it an act of obedience that pleases the Lord, it's an act of freedom. It brings such freedom to your life. And guess what happens when you start to live that way? When you start to obey the commands of Jesus who meant it when He said, love your enemies and pray for those who hate you. When you start living that way, you have fewer and fewer enemies to forgive. And a life with fewer enemies is a better life. Some of us collect enemies like kids collect baseball cards. It's time to stop. It's time to start forgiving. Who can you forgive today? Who can you fight the way Jesus fought with grace and forgiveness? Third point, these chapters tell us our God is stronger. Our God is stronger. Is that good news? Is it good news to find out that this is not an equal fight? This is not Frazier against Ali, for those of you who are my age or older. This is, this is, this is a... This is a, a walkover on the part of Jesus Christ. This is a rout, a blowout. Our God is stronger. We sang about it earlier. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. And that's good news for us. That means that even though chapters 12 and 13 are in the Bible, and even though there's so much in Revelation that is so scary, the main theme of these chapters we just read is this. No matter what the world says, the child born in Bethlehem is the king of creation, the savior of your soul, and he will reign forever and ever. And there's nothing that the forces of evil can do to stop that. And that is the best news you will hear all day, I promise you. Colossians 2.15 says it this way. It says, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So it was even before the empty tomb, Jesus nailed to the cross, took away the power of the enemy. And that makes the enemy like an angry dog with no teeth. It makes the enemy like a snake with no venom. Can they growl at you? Can they, can they bite you? Absolutely. Can they take away from you the most important thing? No. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be afraid. No matter what the enemy does to us, we win. If the worst happens and I give my life 
And I pray that if I were in that position, I would have the courage to give my life. If the worst happened and I gave my life for the cause of Christ, guess where I would be? Right in His presence at that very moment. What they think is a punishment would turn out to be a promotion. So what do we have to fear? Absolutely nothing. The enemy will never take away anything from us that God will not give us a hundredfold. So this leaves us with this final decision. It's time to declare ourselves warriors in this fight. There is a battle going on around us. And I know, I know there's lots of things to be concerned about. You've got bills to pay and you've got neighbors to talk to and you've got, you've got relationships you've got to manage and, and a job you've got to do and all these things on your to-do list. But guess what? None of them is as important as the fact that you and I need to start every day by saying, Lord, today, today, I want to make a difference, an eternal difference in the world around me. I want to be a warrior in the fight for the souls of men. I want to stand for righteousness. I want to stand for grace in a world that only knows hatred. I want to stand for righteousness in a world that only knows evil and wickedness and deception. I want to be yours, wholly and completely yours. So show me the way. If you have the courage to say, Lord, I'll follow you no matter what happens, it won't make your life easier in the short term, but it will make your life eternally significant. And you will never, ever regret that. I believe that. 